Hello there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Inside Intercom. Our guest today is Alex Wolf, the tech, culture and business influencer who has some fascinating ideas about technology and its impact on the human condition, business and society. Fast Company magazine once listed her as one of the top 100 most creative people in business. And she's also been recognised by Forbes, Inc. and Adweek magazine. Her fans even include such iconic figures as Janelle Monet and Snapchat CEO Evan Spiegel. But what does she actually do? Well, as you'll hear, Alex's CV is impressive and varied, but she likes to describe herself as a consumer-facing anthropologist, one who knows how to make branded content that's digestible by modern audiences, and which actually has the potential to make you stop and think. Our conversation covers a lot of ground, from how the metrics we currently measure don't really mean what we'd like to think, and why engineers should seek to design features that enhance human senses rather than just exploiting them. It's a really fascinating conversation. So let's head over to the studio and hear from Alex herself. Alex, we are delighted to welcome you as a guest on Inside Intercom today. You've been described as variously as a tech philosopher, an author, an economist, an entrepreneur, an artist, and even a digital anthropologist. What title out of those, if any, sits most comfortably with you? Yeah, I mean, that's a lot. And I think that's a result of being someone who makes content on the internet. You can be uh, described as many things. Um, You know, what I've been really feeling is is sort of a a mashup of a few of those titles. And what I tell uh, people, particularly when it comes to brands, is I see myself sort of as like a consumer-facing anthropologist. Mm -hmm. And I say that because I really make it a goal to try to make the content digestible to sort of an average person scrolling on YouTube, whereas traditional academic anthropology can sometimes be very book heavy and, you know, academic. So it's very important to get these type of themes out in a a snackable, digestible, consumer friendly way. Brilliant. And I mean, I I guess you're opening the door then for people to do more reading or more in-depth research themselves. Oh, I would love that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because there was a lot that, you know, in researching this, there was a a lot of things that I found myself going down Wikipedia holes or or Googling afterwards to find out more about that you had referenced. So I think it's brilliant that you're able to do that. Um, For people, though, who aren't familiar with your career to date, can you tell us a little bit about how you've arrived at where you are at today? Yes. So uh, I was raised in New York by a father who is really into technology. He decided to pursue IT work compared to doing law. He went to law school and decided not to practice because there was actually more money in being an IT person in the 90s. Um, And I I say that because it's proper context to the environment and the uh, sort of inspirations I had growing up as far as having proximity to new gadgets, new software, and seeing how the internet became a hobby into a way of life. So I was very much inspired to use the internet as a vehicle for business for pretty much everything, empowerment, socializing. I say that the computer was kind of my sibling. And by the time I turned 18, I started to build different internet companies online. I ended up dropping out of school to pursue one that really took off called Boss Babe, which was basically a lifestyle brand for female millennial entrepreneurs who didn't want to sacrifice their professionalism for their aesthetic, just for the way they dress, particularly very feminine women. 
And the brand was very popular on Instagram and went viral around 2014 before there were many brands on Instagram. Instagram was still very much, you know, people uploading their lunches and things like that. And it taught me so much about the relationship between social media and human nature. It taught me about just the how swiftly technology can change economics, media in particular, and telecommunications. And about after two and a half years of running the company, it was a success, but I still wanted to leave it to pursue what I'm doing now, which is talking about how innovation, particularly again with telecommunications, affects economics and relationships. So in 2018, I finally was able to sell the company. It's still up and running under new management, which is great. But I have since then pursued this type of um, tech anthropology work. Amazing. What an incredible story. So one area in your work that you've you've written and spoken about really compellingly is the sometimes disturbing effects that technology and social media have had on really the human condition. So for anyone who might not have seen or, or heard uh, you speak before, do you think that you could break this down a little for people and maybe you could share your ideas about technology and visual stimulation in particular? Yeah, so it really started when I noticed how differently people, particularly in in my generation, millennial generation, I don't know if you're a part of our gang, but um, we, okay, great. (laughs) I, I started to notice how, you know, people would get treated differently depending on what their social status was on these social platforms. Um, I even started to notice the nature of events were very much changing, where what mattered more was how the event translated into KPIs and into these digital metrics, as opposed to having a good time and how those things don't always match up. We tend to try to find a metric that can represent some type of value, but oftentimes, I think particularly in, in social technology, these metrics don't represent what we think they do. For example, a like, you know, is a very uh, everyday example, doesn't always mean a like. So once I started to see these nuances, I very much had this feeling that we were kind of, you know, fish that didn't know we were in water, that type of analogy where things are changing so fast. And I felt that most people were not sensitive to how fast those things were changing. Again, with language, um, with millennials communicating and how most of our communication was being done through text messaging, which is very different from how our parents and our grandparents grew up socializing. So I just couldn't help but, you know, kind of wonder and be fascinated about how are these differences in our social landscape, in our relationships, how are they going to affect us as people? And how much is it going to actually negatively impact us? And so I wanted to write and write and write about it. And the more I did research about writing, the more I figured out that people were having a difficult time reading, which again, research has shown and and is pointing towards the fact that a lot of the reason why people are having difficulty reading is because their eyes are so used to the stimulation of moving images, uh, different images. And if you compare that to words on a page, which are pretty complicated little, you know, dark characters that your brain has to take extra effort in to interpret, it's not really a fair race, right? (laughs) The eyes will gravitate towards the moving image, the spectacle, if you will. And I realized that, you know, wow, how is this going to impact 
politics? How is this going to impact the ability to have deeper conversations, reflection? How does this threaten intellectualism? And so I ended up being so worried and concerned about it. I made a 15-minute documentary which that was supposed to be a book, but that's the irony of studying mediums is that you have to be just as clever about which medium you deliver (laughs) the material in. And so I realized unless I try to say this in 15 minutes or less through a visual medium, you know, there's a closing door that if I don't squeeze my message in before it shuts, you know, and the, the closing door in my opinion is the attention span, which keeps shortening every year. So all of these are effects of technology. And, um, you know, for the most part, I think that once we do realize we're fish in water and this water does have an, an effect on us, I've, I've noticed that people are very interested and want to learn more about it, which has been nice. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that, actually, because one thing I did actually notice when I was watching the Attention for Sale documentary was how often you cut away to short, sharp moving images. You become more aware of it as the documentary goes on and as you're taking in the importance of what you're saying. Right. Obviously, given the nature of what I do, I've always been a big advocate for audio as a medium, just as a standalone medium, because it's always Mm -hmm. kind of felt to me that it has more similar impact on your brain Mm -hmm. reading than, say, watching something because only one of your senses is being engaged. So... Mm -hmm. Your, your brain is forced to fill in the gaps and it engages your imagination, which means that you remember it a bit more and, and maybe have a deeper connection to it. Yeah, I, audio is kind of a happy medium in the sense that, um, you know, it's, it's still based on words for the most part, as opposed to visuals. And most of the time when people listen to audio, they are intentionally engaged in some type of activity that is stimulating the eyes. You know, most people drive when they're listening to podcasts or, you know, they're working out or they're doing something to entertain the eyes, which takes the burden off of the person who is making the audio because that burden then goes to the listener. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You mentioned the millennial generation there a little bit earlier. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about that because you've kind of posited that our relationship with visual stimuli has kind of Mm -hmm. created a generation who, because of our mostly digital adult experiences, really have a skewed perception of time and and reality. So Mm -hmm. how and why do you think this has happened? Yeah, so in a nutshell, the more stimuli you're exposed to, the quicker time feels. You know how they say time flies when you're having fun, right? So right now, most of our environments within our homes and pretty much in general are filled with not just stimuli, but hyper stimuli, especially in comparison to, you know, what our ancestors were exposed to. So a lot of our senses have sort of been nubbed down into these insensitive receptors that just need more and more to feel something. And this, of course, has all types of anthropological effects. And I think the question is, do we seek to serve it by giving it even more hyperstimuli as an attempt to feel something? Or do we, you know, try to restore their sensitivity by refraining from so much stimulation to begin with so we can feel more um, by being in in environments with less? That makes a lot of sense. And I guess, especially with everything that's happened in the world over the last kind of six months, anyway, this year, it's spread wider than millennials now because 
everybody is engaged with their screen all the time. They're, you know, they're working from home. In some cases, it's the only way to socialize. There was a really interesting piece in The Guardian a couple of months ago that kind of showed how lockdown is affecting our perception and Mm -hmm. understanding of time. And that kind of aligns with a lot of your theories. So what sort of kind of fallout, I guess, can we expect from this period where we're being forced into the screen more and more? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to, again, consider the context of our environments. And right now we live in a culture of what I call has like an obsessive blind technophilia, basically meaning we adopt tech with somewhat of, you know, of an obsession and don't do much analysis on predicting at least some of its consequences. You know, there'll always be unintended consequences with technology, but we can start to ask questions. And I hope, you know, given where we are now, we we incorporate those more. So I think that one of the main ways we can start to, I guess, not be so negatively impacted by, you know, so much screen time is focusing on how to shift this attention economy, which relies on our impulses and our inability to look away um, and exploiting our, our eyeballs to want to gravitate towards, you know, sensation and spectacle to going into an economy where we really are, instead of trading our attention, we're trading our dollars um, and not relying on a third party to create all this stimulation for us, but seeking, you know, quality, whether it be journalism, news, entertainment, and making the conscious decision to actually pay for those things, which I do see happening little by little. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. I know you said before that you think of the internet as a presence rather than Mm -hmm. a destiny which is interesting because I always think of it as a place, but that right. presence is all around us. So surely you must have some, you know, tricks of the trade that you do to try and <laughs> stay engaged in the here and now with all the research that you've done. Would you have any of those that you'd like to share with us? 
Yeah, well, I think multitasking is overrated. We'll start there. <laughs> I've really tried to switch into trying to do everything at once to doing one thing at a time, no matter how boring it is. Um, and those are those opportunities pop up pretty much every second of the day. It could be, okay, let me, you know, untie my shoes before I wash my hands. There, there are all these like many, many, many calculations and decisions that we make. And I've noticed that we can maybe feel like we can do all of them at once. And it, it obviously slows down the process. It makes it more difficult and frustrating. But just by literally doing one thing at a time, um, I think has been really helpful. And just to give a little bit more background for people who don't really, who might be hearing the internet is a presence thing and are like, what? <laughs> um, basically, I think that, you know, obviously imagery and the way we conceptualize things are greatly related. And when the internet was becoming a consumer facing product in the 90s, um, it was branded to, to us as a place. It was a place that you not only go to in the corner of your home, but once you're logged on, you are now in a digital environment, a virtual environment, and you had the ability to step away and literally log off. Once mm. the internet became a mobile experience um, and we started to incorporate more of the internet of things, it wasn't a destination. And I, fi I find that most of the friction we have with our, our technology and the, the products that we build is they're still being built under the conception that the internet is a separate place. So other technology that has that type of presence are things like cars and electricity. I, I make a note in one of my videos that, you know, we don't say we're addicted to electricity because the electricity is so ingrained into our everyday life and it has so many different purposes. A lot of people still interpret the internet as Twitter or the internet as Instagram or Netflix. And that is just a tiny sliver of what the internet actually is as a invention and as a technology. So it's very important to have that context because then when we think of it that way, I think we can design more human-friendly technology. Yeah. And speaking about that, that human friendly technology, as, as you called it there, and I've heard you refer to it as meaningful technology before. So like yes. one to contribute to rather than distract, I guess, from the human experience. Like what are some examples that you could give us of that? And maybe especially given that this audience, you know, is comprised of some of the people that might build that, like what are good examples that you can think of and how do you think people should go about building them? Yeah. So if you are in, if you're either an engineer or you're responsible for managing a team of engineers, some of the qualifiers I have spoken about for human friendly technology include tech that is sensitive to our emotions and implies that we are human. So technology that doesn't do this are sort of like automated communications that don't consider the environment that the person is in. So for example, you know, financial notifications being pinged to you in the middle of your sleep or, you know, automated messages that are meant to appear as the person is really there and not disclosing when they're not. Just any technology that implies that someone is also a perfect robot <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and is not going to feel, you know, won't be offended by so much either automated communications or gamification methods. So obviously things like likes can definitely play with the human psyche in a way that isn't totally human friendly. So that's one. One of the others is it nurtures or enhances a sense instead of exploiting it. So again, so much of our technology right now is exploiting not just our eyes, but if you think about 
processed foods and how those exploit our taste buds, quite literally, and how important it is to build things that actually cushion or support our organic nature as it is. So thinking instead of a video game that gets your heart pumping, more of, you know, something like eyeglasses, which is only supporting an organic part of your being versus sort of throwing or or, uh, exposing your eyes to hyperstimuli that's unnatural. Another example that I think is super, super important, especially right now in the States and just in in Western society, is technology that has a harmonious tech-to-technique ratio. So what I often say is that every time we make a technology, we're also birthing a technique to have to use it. So if you think about one of the examples I normally give is is the microwave and the stove. So the microwave, pretty much a, a child can learn how to use it to cook food. The result is cooked food. A stove's result is also cooked food. But the technique you need to cook food with the microwave is, is vastly different from the technique you need to cook with a stove. And the reason why that's important is that if we burden the technology with the utility and don't give some of that burden to the human and their skillful nature, then what it does is it kind of results in a society where people don't really have many natural techniques, whether it be cooking, whether it be maintenance on on machinery, whether it be, you know, having a conversation on the phone because we've been using text messages as a way to, again, um, take the, the burden of the utility off of the person. Um, we want to be really careful with that because one of the most important ways to preserve the integrity of a civilization is to have, you know, a body of, of people who have various techniques that can support the community, whether we have the highest, easiest technology of all. The, the concern, obviously, is what's going to happen if one of these technologies can't work one day? You know, who has the technique to make things go on? And then the, the last one is, is presence, incorporating technology that you know, one of the beautiful things about the internet is that we can have a live conversation and it has telecommunication properties that allow two parties or more to be present at the same time and create that feeling of presence. So one of the best examples I give is I have a friend, uh, Joanna Montgomery, who started a smart pillow company for long distance couples where one, one person lays on the pillow, the other pillow glows up, even if it's on the other side of the world. And what that does is it offers an opportunity for that long distance couple to feel present with each other. And she actually just did this deal with a, with a children's hospital and is going to be um, contracting those pillows out for children who, who are finding little research coming out from the hospitals that the children are healing faster and with more ease with these pillows because, you know, sometimes their loved ones can't be there. 24-7, but the pillow allows for that presence. And, and the irony is so much of our telecommunications are literally running on the idleness of us being by the computer. So if you think of email, if you think of social media, uh, most of the design is you dump information in and you can go idle and someone will hopefully catch whatever dump of information you have because it is within a sea of other dumped information, which is, I think, an okay to communicate. I think the threat is when we make it a primary method of communication as, you know, research definitely shows that the best communication is done when both parties are present. So, you know, if the internet gives us that capability, I think um, we should definitely start seeing more technology that incorporates that. 
Okay, great. And then for the people that are that are actually building these, what do you think are the things that they need to keep front of mind in order to to be able to deliver on those different facets that you've described there? Yeah, I think what's really important is, you know, uh, incorporating the, the human nature into it. Again, there's I, I find there's a big gap between what engineers are being told to build and what actually makes sense. I mean, if you like some examples I can think of is like if you think of Twitter and you think of Facebook, as much as I can enjoy both of those platforms, they were built by young men who were notoriously known for being socially awkward. So it's just kind of, you'll, you'll always see the, the psychology of the, the designer or the, the, you know, whoever makes the, the technology into the design. So it's kind of ironic that, you know, we're using social platforms built by people who don't have the proper education in, well, at the time, and have the proper, not just education, but I guess you could say the communication skills to build a platform that would be really successful at communicating for people. Particularly, again, they were, you know, late adolescent kind of kids. Zuckerberg was 19 when he started Facebook. So that is also important context. So the reason why I say that is that I guess whatever you're building, be sensitive to what bias you're bringing to the design and not to, you know, throw it away just because it's a part of who you are, but just being sensitive to it and saying, hey, if I'm going to build an app for women, should I maybe, you know, hire some women before I design it? Or, you know, we see those happen all the time. Or if I'm going to, you know, design this feature, is this feature just here to exploit a sense so it can sell an ad? You know, and, and is that something that I want to do? What kind of cost does that have on the society I live in? So those kinds of questions, I think, are really important. And I don't think order should be taken so, so blindly um, and should have a little bit more of that analysis. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I love what you're saying about bringing different experiences or perspectives to the table when you're at the design stage. Right. You have so much experience, Alex, of, of working with B2C brands um, mm-hmm. throughout your work. You know, you're, you're an ambassador for Dropbox, among many, many other things. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear what you think are like really good examples of B2C marketing initiatives that you think B2B companies could learn from because a lot of our audience are B2B and I think sometimes we see that as another and we don't realize that there are kind of you know marketing initiatives that that we could do as well. Yeah. I think one of the most important and effective approaches is to try to decorate the feed and the lives of the consumers instead of interrupt it. So as much as I love ad, I love ads and I love paid ads, I think the most successful campaigns are ones that end up becoming user generated just because people have a natural social desire to want to incorporate them in their, on their social media, on their Instagram stories. Um, And and I think that particularly for older brands who were burdened with, you know, how do we basically spoon feed this concept, this campaign to our people, to our target audience now have the challenge of how do we surrender and, you know, maybe drop a seed, but then let it flourish 
through user-generated content and promotion. So that can look like, a, you know, a TikTok dance going viral. It can look like um, a meme challenge going viral. But the point is that you'll find the best success when there's, a, there's sort of a non-resistance to how the user-generated content will grow. So examples are things like when Baby Yoda got really popular. I, I read an article that Disney was a little off put by it because they felt like their IP was all over the place, which again, Disney's an old company. That's something they're worried about. But it really ended up working for them in the long run because that Baby Yoda ended up you know, being a sales funnel, even for someone like me, who at that point had never watched Star Wars. I watched it because I needed to see the cute little baby Yoda. Um, and then the next thing you know, I'm watching all the Star, Star Wars Empire, and I, I am now in the ecosystem in which all the intangible value from those stories have more value to me, and I and I can consider myself a, a consumer of that particular business. You know, so that's because the internet again it, it has these properties where once something takes off, that's what really creates a, a revolution in, in your business and in the marketing of it. And, and that was what I felt with um, my first company as well. The reason why I became successful is because most of the uh, content we were posting were like sort of motivational quotes and people would screenshot them and share them and it went haywire, it went all over the place. So really just, yeah, surrendering to that current of influence instead of trying to control it. So find your baby Yoda then. Find your baby Yoda. <laughs> I never thought of him as a, as a gateway drug to the Star Wars universe before, but it kind of makes sense. Yeah. One thing we love to ask guests on Inside Intercom, Alex, is whether there's an individual from their discipline, and you've lots to choose from, who inspires them or that they aspire to. Yeah. Um, I A lot of the philosophy I talk about is inspired by, by Taoism. And so that means, you know, people like Lao Tzu and Alan Watts, Another big inspiration is, is Buckminster Fuller. And, and what all these thinkers kind of had in common and, and their theories were that they interpreted our species as being a part of the natural makeup of the universe and not separate from it, which I think is really key to building harmonious technology. I think technology will never be good or bad. I think that's not the right question. It's about is it worthy of you know being a part of our society? Amazing. So much to ponder and read up on there. Thank you very much. <laughs> Finally, Alex, before we let you go, where can people keep up with your work? Yeah, so uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Alex Wolf. And if you're interested in sort of these topics, then you can also sign up for my newsletter at my website, alexwolf.co, not com, alexwolf.co slash newsletter. Super. Well, look, we'll link to all of those in the show notes. It has been such a pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alex. If you did, we'd love you to give us a review. It helps like-minded people like you find their way to our content. We'll be back next week with another great episode of Scale by Intercom, featuring Zuora's Chief Data Scientist, Carl Gold. We hope you'll join us. This is Inside Intercom.